This is the Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore, and today we'll take a look at some stories from history that uh, I have written, Dave. Hope that's not too self-centered, you know, to read my own stories. We never feel that way about you, Bob. By the way, we recently had Paul Grandal on the program, and Paul had so many interesting things to say about immigration. We never got to another topic we could have uh, addressed with him, but I'll just bring it up. I just thought this was fascinating. Uh, in, in connection with my other part-time work now, the radio show I do interviewing the mayor of Albany, I go through the Times Union with a fine-tooth comb, Dave, to find out stuff about what's happening in Albany news. And Paul Grandal did a recent story called This is Nijmegen. I think that's how you pronounce it. It's a city in Holland. You wouldn't know how to pronounce that, would you, Nijmegen? No, no idea, Bob. But Nijmegen was, you know, is a, a city in the Netherlands that Albany adopted, if you will, after World War II. It, uh, Nijmegen was the scene of uh, tremendous battles uh, during the war in Europe in World War II. Much of the city was destroyed. And what adopting the city meant is that uh, Albany citizens sent a, a shipload of relief supplies to that war-ravaged city. And also there's a certain amount of um, visitation back and forth uh, in the years after World War II. And somebody made a documentary film about it, and it's been lost for decades. And the basic point of Paul Grandal's story, they found the documentary. And uh, you uh, jogged my memory here, Bob. This was something that cities were doing for quite a period of time, and it doesn't see either I'm missing the point or they're not doing it anymore. Well, that's a, that's a point. I know that when I was working up in uh, Amsterdam, the city there adopted or, or made a sister city of, of a place in Italy. I remember uh, this was in the administration of Mayor Ann Thane and my old friend Dave Dibus, who plays accordion, <laughs> where they did some kind of Skype link with the city, and he's there playing the accordion for the Italians, and the Italians did uh, some kind of musical presentation for Amsterdam. Yeah, I remember it. Uh, the, the reference I make to all of this, I was working in Auburn, New York, Back in the uh, 70s, and uh, Auburn adopted Aurelia, Ontario, Canada, where um, Gordon Lightfoot was born. Really? Did Gordon come to town? To see no, it? no, it, no, not as far as I know. It seems to me that the one time he did up at uh, SPAC, he walked off stage. Do you remember that? You yes, know? he did. I, right. I guess he was a tough time of his life, I guess. I don't know. Well, listen, we, we, uh, we keep delaying the start of these stories. All Maybe right. we won't get any in, but right. that uh, gives me another uh, uh, story that's out there. I believe WMHT, where we have done some work and where they carry our historian's podcast on their Rise channel, but the TV station is uh, doing a documentary about the history of SPAC, because I believe it's SPAC's 50th anniversary. All right. So that should be airing soon if it isn't uh, already. But the stories I have, Dave, I don't know if we'll get all of them in. I have three picked out. One is the story, I think I'll start with it, because we were supposed to do it last time, Veterans Housing in Amsterdam. That's one story. And then A Night to Remember, which has to do with the sinking of the Titanic and a couple of local connections. And Central Bridge Barbershop Fire claimed seven lives back in the 1920s, a story out of Schoharie County. We're going to start with the veterans' housing in Amsterdam, uh, which originally appeared in the Daily Gazette, one of my Focus on History columns. 
World War II had ended 11 months earlier, and many Amsterdam war veterans were outraged over the lack of affordable housing. After gathering at the John J. Wisemirski American Legion Post 701, an estimated 200 veterans of both world wars, led by a drum and bugle corps, paraded through the streets and ended up at City Hall on Church Street. They marched into the building and crowded the common council chambers in what a reporter called an unprecedented demonstration. I think that's one of the reasons I was attracted to this story, Dave. I mean, it seems so 1960s-ish or something, but they had a, a picture in the recorder of the uh, veterans. I mean, they weren't in uniform, but these uh, young men to middle-aged men you know, marching into City Hall kind of re- reminded me of the sort of protest that we saw in the 60s or, you know, and to this day. I, you know, somehow I don't, didn't associate it with that time. It does It does seem as though all of this happened in the past, but it continues, and it will happen in the future, Bob. Well, this large crowd of veterans came into the city hall and into the common council chambers. The Amsterdam Veterans Council organized the protest and had chosen Joseph Jacobs as their spokesman. Jacobs, in later years, ran unsuccessfully for mayor three times, then served as Amsterdam city attorney. There was a lot of... Um, cohesiveness, I think is the word, or maybe it's not, not, not clear what I mean, but I mean, the, the veterans were really a, a group right after World War II. And I know your your dad had survived the war and had been a prisoner, in fact. Uh, indeed. You, you, there is a camaraderie, and, it's, and it sticks with you. Yeah. Well, these you know veterans were upset about the lack of affordable ha- housing. So that July 9th in 1946, uh, Joseph Jacobs told the Common Council and Mayor Joseph Hand that almost 300 veterans and their families in Amsterdam needed housing. Many faced eviction. To great applause, Jacob said, quote, The problem is within the province of the council. We don't want sympathy. We want homes, unquote. The politicians heard them. I mean, it was, you know, again, maybe at that time unprecedented. It certainly was a show of support for this cause. So the very next month, in August of 1946, Mayor Hand thought he'd put together a proposal to build temporary housing for the veterans on land off Forest Avenue in Amsterdam. However, the federal government then announced there was no money available. He had made this plan based on a pot of money that the federal government had to build housing, but all of a sudden they kind of pulled the rug out from underneath uh, Mayor Hand. So to speak. So to speak. And were were uh, were the were the veterans promised, or were jobs being held for the vets through the war years? I I don't know specifically. I I think so. I think I, I know many of them went back to work. Um, did that happen to your dad, or did, or no? I I don't know the story. Yeah, um, I know that uh, reading accounts of the late 40s. We, I've done a number of columns about the late 40s. They would speak of the um, veterans who had you know, gone to war and come back. So I, I think in general, the carpet mills, let's say, did um, make an effort to hire the, the veterans that were returning. But were the mills on the decline at that point? No, not at all. The, the, the World War II was the boom time. If you could read the writing on the wall, they were about to decline. But that wasn't apparent, you know what I mean? 
All right. And I don't mean to sidetrack this, but the mills during the war, they had to, they went into a war mode and they were making, I think you told me once, yeah, perish. They were making blankets and canvas in okay. large part. I All think right. they might have made some carpet. And in fact, that's what uh, propelled the mills in, in Amsterdam specifically right after World War II, the carpet mills, because carpets had become a scarce commodity in uh, in World War II because they they weren't a lot of it wasn't being made so they were you know gung ho to to make carpet uh, and again you could read the writing on the wall uh, the carpet mills were looking for a better way to make carpets than the way they made them in Amsterdam and they found one <laughs> which is called tufting uh, as opposed to weaving and they never did tufting in uh, Amsterdam and they started building tufting plants down in the south which is where the the mills moved eventually. All right. So Mayor Hand, uh, the big demonstration before him and the uh, Common Council, and he tried to do something and, and could not get the federal government to back uh, housing for veterans in Amsterdam. Enter Governor Thomas Dewey, who was going to run for president in a year or two, and the state legislature. They stepped in, putting up state money for temporary housing projects in 40 municipalities, including Amsterdam, Schenectady, and Gloversville. I imagine there were some of those cities, and I don't know which ones they were, out there in central New York where you were raised, Dave. Yeah, I, I, I somehow I, I somehow don't re- relate to this uh, closely, but I assume all of this housing is, is still there? No, and that's the rest of the story. <laughs> all right. A veterans' emergency housing project was built in 1947 at the end of Bunn Street in Amsterdam at a cost of $250,000. Bunn Street is on Market Street Hill. And the, what they built were single-story wood frame buildings. They really weren't built to last. I mean, they weren't tents or Quonset huts or anything like that, but I, I guess somehow they weren't built to last. Uh, uh, single-story wood frame buildings. They were near what was then Wilbur H. Lynch High School, which is today the Lynch Literacy Academy, a uh, middle school uh, at the at the end of Bun Street. Bun Street kind of ends, and this housing project was uh, built there. According to a 1948 city directory, the Amsterdam complex had 16 buildings and 70 apartments. Eight buildings had four units, seven of them had five units, and one building had three units. But there were 70 uh, units of uh, housing in the uh, 16 buildings. The late Amsterdam resident John Skorotic told me once his relatives, some of them, lived there, and his grandfather was a caretaker there. Market Hill Amsterdam native uh, Richard Sidlowskis uh, told me that the city erected a wooden barrier at the end of Bun Street near Lindbergh Avenue to prevent through traffic. Sidlowskis said... He and his friends referred to the children who lived in the temporary housing as veterans' kids. Sidlowskis used to stop there on his way back from a nearby playground to his home uh, elsewhere on Market Hill to get a drink of water from one of the small community rooms, he said, or perhaps they were laundry rooms, which were in each building. Peter Betts, who joined us not too long long ago, historian, uh, professor emeritus at Fulton Montgomery Community College, He, too, grew up on Market Hill, and he said, quote, I remember walking through there to get to the school to visit my mother when she would go to work sometimes in the summer. 
I seem to recall there were always little kids running around and their mothers yelling at them, unquote. So I think the point there is that these you know, were veterans, but uh, they were veterans in need. So it, it was a real kind of public feel of a public housing complex. And at the time, I'd say Market Hill was more of an upscale place to live. So maybe there was, I don't, I don't really know, I don't think either one of these gentlemen are voicing resentment, but it was just different from uh, the housing was around there. It, it, it sounds as though it was rather transient. Yeah, I think that was the idea, <clears throat> that you'd move in there and uh, hope to get another uh, place to live as, you know, as soon as you could. Would this be the equivalent? You were talking to Paul Grandal a couple of weeks ago about the refugees in the area and how the, I believe if I have it correct, the United States government gives refugees four months, a stipend of four months in order to pay the rent? Well, yeah, this you know, may be similar. Of course, these were veterans of right? our, our great war, and so I don't think... But the be... government doing something. Right. It was uh, uh, something that the, they needed to, if you will, get on their feet. The state managed the project in Amsterdam, and I presume the others around the, the state, and they had a local man as uh, the overseer or manager of the Amsterdam project, and his name is or was Michael Kerbelis. He was a local realtor. He uh, oversaw it from 1947 when the project opened until 1952 when the city took control, and then he, he continued as manager. In 1954, the Amsterdam Common Council voted not to rent to new tenants, and by the end of that year, 23 of the 70 units were vacant. There was interest in relocating the individual houses as they became vacant. Several charitable organizations, including the YMCA, Catholic War Veterans, and the Alex Isabel Little League Field, asked for units for various purposes. Several of the houses were sold and moved to private locations, one to McQueen Road outside of Amsterdam, the other uh, to uh, Wilds Hill Road north of Fort Johnson. And I just happened to find out because of another story I did about a famous Amsterdam man, Judge Raymond Zirak, who was an Amsterdam judge, city court judge for 24 years. He bought one of the houses and moved it to Galway Lake for use as a camp. The remaining dwellings at the end of Bun Street were demolished in May of 1958. So, so I, there, once again, the uh, the folks who served in the Korean War, I, I assume that when they came back from the Korean War, they didn't see a particular need to house them. They must, right. I would say they, they must not have. Um, or, or, yeah, they did not build another housing okay. complex like that, veterans housing complex. But... It's one of those uh, stories in Amsterdam that people you know find interesting. One thing I didn't put in my story, but I you know found this and well I'll, I'll bring it up anyway. Uh, Amsterdam produced a uh, kind of well-known opera singer named Albert Soschen. I'm uh, having a little mental lapse here because as an opera singer he went by his mother's name, which was Italian. Uh, you know, which maybe is more appropriate for opera or something like that. But so he wasn't famous as Albert Soshin. But uh, anyway, he grew up there or he, he lived there for for some time was the was how the story goes. Um, and then left Amsterdam and was sort of a rising star at the Metropolitan Opera when I believe he died in an auto accident. 
So, and I, I'm not sure this has anything to do with anything, but we're talking history. Uh, this past weekend, we took a trip to Buffalo for family reasons, and on the way back on the New York State Thruway, I passed through the neighborhood in which I grew up, still there. Everything is still pretty much intact. What, what is that town? You probably told me. Maddie uh, Dale. Maddie Dale. Which is a, the first suburb out from the the city of Syracuse. Everybody moved into that area around 1954, same time frame. But on the way, as a kid growing up, we would take the dare, climb the fence, ready for this stupid move, Okay. run across both lanes east and westbound of oh, the New geez. York State. <laughs> I'm young. All right. Oh, don't, don't tell your kids. Dave. But what was on the other side was the dump for Syracuse, China. Okay. And as we were coming back from Buffalo, there was a mound there. We're talking 50 years later. And all that china is still buried there to this day. We'd go over and get complete sets of china. But then you'd run back to over the across the throughway carrying china. Yeah, we weren't smart enough to go down to the nearest bridge and come across. You know, uh, please don't tell the state police. No, we won't. Right. I, I think the statute of limitations is says, up on that one. Is up on that one. All right. Did you have? Uh, I have another story. Night to remember. You said. A night to remember the Titanic. Um, that was the title of the book they wrote about the sinking of the Titanic. April 15th, tax day. Well, I don't think we had income tax at that time. But anyway, it became tax day. April 15th of 1912 was when the Titanic sank. Close, Bob. I believe it was real close. It was real close. All right. It was real close. I have two uh, stories and, you know, list a little aside, uh, links uh, to the Titanic in connection with people uh, from the Amsterdam area. One was a woman who died in the town of Amsterdam. Except for that, she didn't have a lot to do with uh, Amsterdam, but it was an interesting story in terms of the the sinking of the Titanic. A New York City area woman who survived the sinking felt compelled to write to President William Howard Taft after she had been rescued and had been living uh, you know, maybe for a month back in America, she wanted to write to President Taft to set the record straight. Her name, Marie Grice Young, Marie Young. Uh, her connection to Amsterdam is she died in 1959 at what was then Mount Loretto Nursing Home on Sword Hill Road in the town of Amsterdam. It now has a different name. It's still a nursing home. She was 83 when she died, at Mount Loretto in uh, the town of Amsterdam. Marie Young was a native of Washington, D.C., and she was well-connected, having given music lessons to President Theodore Roosevelt's daughter, Ethel. She was on the Titanic with Ella White, Mrs. J. Stewart White of New York City. They were traveling together, and they, for many years, I believe, they lived together. They had boarded the ship as first-class passengers in Cherbourg, France. I didn't even realize that, but the Titanic left England and then picked up more passengers in France. No idea. Yeah. So Young and White, and maybe, and you'll relate to this, Dave, they had chickens with them on the Titanic. They were bringing chickens. I know it's a very serious, sad story, but they were bringing chickens back from Europe that they, uh, I think uh, Ella White had a home in Connecticut in addition to New York City, and so they wanted to have these chickens at their farm, kind of. 
And the do not attempt this in 2016. Probably not, but apparently it was rather common. I mean, it was done. Uh, they stored the chickens in the hold, and they would go down from time to time to visit the chickens and tip the porter or whoever you know it, it was, the official that was down there taking care of the chickens. How about that? I don't think the chickens survived. But no, they didn't survive. No, I don't think so. Uh, in fact, I know they didn't. Not right. to be silly about again a t- okay. serious topic. Both of these women, Ella White and um, I forget the name of our main our main character, uh, Marie Young, Marie Young and Ella White, were rescued. In fact, they were rescued on one of the first lifeboats to leave the Titanic, and their boat was picked up by the Carpathia. If you remember that name, I do. That was the ship that came to the Titanic's rescue. You know, hours after the sinking. But why did she write to President Taft? Well, in her letter to Taft, Young denied a published report that she had conversed with presidential aide Archibald Butt as the disaster unfolded. Butt, who died that night, had been a military attaché to both Theodore Roosevelt and to William Howard Taft. In fact, I've read a, a biography of well, uh, it wasn't a uh, Doris Kearns Goodwin book about the um, that era, I guess you'd say, about the presidency of Roosevelt, presidency of Taft, and so forth. And they were to some extent intertwined. You know, they were great friends. And then they had this big split, and Taft uh, or Roosevelt ended up running against Taft in 1912. But anyway, this Archibald Butt was a great friend to both of those presidents. He was just a great guy, and he was very. A fish, you know, he was very uh, hardworking and knew how to, you know, get things organized, and everybody liked him, and he's on the Titanic. Um, according to the published account, but, uh, you know, as the ship starts to sink, asked Young, and it would make sense because, you know, she's from Washington. She may have, I think she did actually know him, and supposedly Butt asked her to, quote, remember me to all the folks back home. Young wrote to President Taft, Quote, the alleged interview is entirely an invention by some officious reporter who thereby brought much distress to many of Major Butt's near relatives and friends. When they wrote me of what a comfort the story was to them, I had to tell them it was untrue as no such deception could be carried through. She added, when I last saw Major Butt, he was walking on deck with Mr. Clarence Moore on Sunday afternoon, which had been a couple of days before the sinking. So that's the story of Marie Young in the Titanic. She was she lived most of her life in the New York City area, but when she came to Mount Loretto Nursing Home, she'd been in New York City, uh, again, died in, at Mount Loretto, and there was just one local relative listed in her obituary, a great niece in Loudonville. I apologize. Where did the story originate? Where did the, 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 the I, don't, I don't have the the citation as to where the okay. but it was I have read some in fact the next story I'm going to tell uh, you know I think maybe it has a certain amount of questionable details in it or things that almost sound too impossible to believe and people you know the reporters were writing uh, stories like that uh, after the Titanic. Okay. All right. Uh, I, I think there, I think you just gave us enough information to understand. All right. The other story I subtitled, It's My Husband, Amsterdam native Jane and 
4B Hoyt also survived the Titanic. Born in 1877, she attended Amsterdam High School, worked as a stenographer. Her parents were Frank Forby and his wife, Emmeline Hewitt Forby. They lived on Chestnut Street in Amsterdam. Her father was a carpenter and health inspector. Jane Forby, uh, Dave, I think you can say, married well. In 1906, she moved to New York City after marrying Frederick Hoyt. Don't know how they met. He was a partner in a lace importing firm in New York City, a graduate of Yale, and a yachtsman. According to the recorder of the local Amsterdam paper, they had booked passage on the Titanic partly because Frederick Hoyt knew the captain, Edward John Smith, and the ship's surgeon, Dr. William O'Laughlin. Jane Hoyt later told reporters she had felt the reversal of the ship's engines in the middle of the night and saw something white going by her porthole. The doctor, the ship's surgeon that her husband knew, apparently was the man who came right to their cabin and told the Hoyts, you know, it's time to, it's time to abandon ship. And they went to the places, you know, where they were, the place where they were loading the lifeboats, and there was a lot of confusion. And they didn't board right away. There were people that came up from the lower sections of the ship, you know, the poorer people from steerage. You know, and there was certain back and forth about who's going to get on the lifeboats. And there was that kind of famous saying that women and children first. So ultimately, Jane Hoyt was convinced to get on the last lifeboat that successfully left the Titanic, but her husband, Frederick, stayed on board. What happened to him? Well, the Patterson Morning Call of New Jersey gave this account. Sounds a little far-fetched, but the end of it has some truth to it. Uh, Frederick Hoyt, after leaving his wife in the lifeboat, reportedly went to the bridge and had a stiff drink with Captain Smith. I would, too. (laughs) Yes, I think so, and I think Smith would have as well. Then Mr. Hoyt went to a lower deck and jumped into the water. Oh. He was found by a lifeboat crew, dragged on board. And again, according to this newspaper in New Jersey, quote, one of the women passengers saw his almost naked condition and in pitiful compassion drew from about her shoulders a long fur robe and threw it about the half-frozen man. The woman was Jane Hoyt, according to the newspaper. She shrieked, my God, it's my husband. Sounds a little far-fetched, but he was rescued by a lifeboat. Uh, All right. You you prompt a thought. I don't really know. I don't know the history real well, except for what movies have taught me over the years. But the question, did any women or children die on the Titanic? Or did they have enough room for all of them on the Oh, life? I think women and children died on the Titanic. They, they did, all right. No, the, the lower sections of the boat where the poor people were, I, mean, right. I, I don't think they're... So only the rich and famous made the boats. Well, not completely, but, you know, it was it, it was tough. They didn't have, I guess they didn't have enough lifeboats. And at some point, I think some of the lifeboats, they couldn't launch or they didn't launch properly. All right. Several hours later, the canard liner Carpathia picked up that lifeboat. Uh, both uh, the uh, Hoyts, or the, uh, that was not, yeah, that was their married name, yes. Both the Hoyts lived fairly long lives. Jane Hoyt lived until 1932. They'd moved to 
California, Long Beach. Her husband died in New York City in 1940. And when the Carpathia came in, uh, Jane's father, Frank Forby, traveled by train from Amsterdam to New York City to meet the Carpathia. So there. Sometime in the near future, Bob, the Central Bridge Fire. We will. We don't have time for the Central Bridge Fire today. Maybe I have time to just blurt out that there's all... I didn't put it in this latest column, but I sometimes uh, regale folks with the idea that my grandmother and her children, or most of her children, including my father, almost took the Titanic, but almost, you know, is not the same as taking it. So that's our uh, stories for today on the Historians Podcast. Thanks to uh, Dave Green for joining us. Don't forget to uh, contribute to our GoFundMe campaign, gofundme.com forward slash historians2016. I'm Bob Cudmore.